Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Stuff Your Ears. We are a podcast of Bismarck Community Church, and here we will give you conversations, discussions, as well as sermons and thoughts and ruminations that all are aimed at helping us to live, or at the very least, to understand what it means to live as a faithful Christian in a world that's often not quite what we wish it were. Glad you tuned in. I hope you enjoy. And as always, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Well, this is what I wrote down. Ye who long pain and sorrow bear. You restore every heart that is broken. Waymaker, promise keeper. My God, that is who you are. Um, so for those of us that maybe don't always see it or don't always feel it, would you join in me and let's speak loudly as we let our neighbors and me and each other believe that we believe what we say we believe, and let's recite together what we believe, which is the Apostles' Creed, if we get that up there. I believe in God, the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Happened under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, ascended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it, I believe it. May we all also join me in remembering why we give. Why do we give? I think it's on there. I know. There we go. Why do we give? Read this with me. God designed us so that generosity releases chemicals in our brain that make us happy. We give to be happy. That's true. Look it up. It actually is true. We give because it'll actually make us more fulfilled and happier people. Let me pray for us. Jesus, Spirit, Father, you are with us. You are, um, you are making things new, even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it, even when things around us feel incomplete, broken, messy, messed up, hard. You are good, and somehow... Somehow, we know you're in it. Help us to believe that you're in it, even when it doesn't feel like it. Um, maybe, maybe when our hearts are selfish, when we, uh, we want you are in it to equal we are fulfilled. But, but God, help us to learn that to be fulfilled means to depend upon you. Help us to walk through that. Lord, we pray for those of us here this morning who are 
who are in good places, that, that they would hold and remember that, that they would thank you and lean hard into gratitude and thankfulness and praise. And Lord, we pray for those of us here that might not be in good places, that we would lean hard into trust and prayer and lament and hope. And God, meet us all wherever we are. Help us Help us to be a people, not a bunch of different individuals experience a bunch of different things, but a, a people who shares together and walks together and lives together, depends upon one another, who's, who's, who are interlocking arms and helping one another to, to walk when we're strong because we will need to lean on someone else later. Jesus, you are making that type of community right here for your glory and for our good. Would you continue building that up and help us to to trust you, to depend on you, and to to know that you are working things out for your glory and for our good. And help us to remember and and pray along with you as you taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The kingdom, the power, and the glory forever is his. Sometimes we're tempted to make it about, to make it ours, aren't we? We are, um, we're going to be, we're finishing our series today of calling out to God. That's what we called it, the survey through a few uh, Old Testament prayers, the, the saints of old that come before God and how they pray, just kind of looking at those prayers. We're looking at Ezra today. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 9, a little bit you should know, a little background. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, once upon a time, were one book. Last week we talked about Nehemiah. Ezra, the, 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 the Old Testament people who had this book, called it the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We kind of just split it and said, well, this is Nehemiah and this is Ezra, and that's it. But, but it was, and, and as we talked about last week, Nehemiah was primarily about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra is primarily, well, the story is kind of about the rebuilding of the temple. And Ezra is a guy who actually doesn't come on the scene until well into the book. The book gives some background information and Ezra shows up. Um, I think in chapter 6 or 7. We're looking at chapter 9. And what is happening and what I think the books are trying to communicate is that in the midst of this, the people, right? We kind of talked about this last week when we talked about Nehemiah. The people have been coming back into Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity. They were taken away. The, the temple was burned to the ground. The walls were torn down. I mean, just, you know, if you can imagine just utter destruction. That's what Jerusalem had experienced. Well, about 80 years later, they're starting to come back, and they're trickling in slowly, and we, we read some of that information in Ezra and they give us genealogies and all this stuff but it's basically like the people are are coming back slowly beginning to rebuild but they are experiencing what you might call what we might call 
partial salvation. I, I, I didn't make up those words. They're in the dictionary. But, but I kind of am thinking, how do we understand what's going on in their lives? And that's what I'm kind of calling it. They're experiencing what we could call partial salvation. They're, they're, they're getting a taste of what they want or what, the, what God has wanted for them. They're, getting it, they're returning. They've been gone for a generation. And now they're, they're coming back and they're beginning to taste hope. But it's not full. It's not, the temple hasn't even been built when it starts, and, and, and they're, you know, they're getting there, but it's, it's a little at a time. I think that's kind of relatable. Um, some of you will know someone like this. I bet a lot of us will know someone like this. There are people that I know who, um, you know, maybe they, maybe they used to have an alcohol problem, right? And they quit drinking, but they're not really doing better. There's a word for that. We call it dry drunk, right? They're dry, but they're mean, they're angry, and they're bitter, and they're not, they're not really working, right? There's, but they're not drinking, so that's like, that's kind of, it's like partial salvation, right? It's, it's, it's a taste, it's a glimpse, they're, you know, they're able to hold a job, but not a whole lot of relationships, <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what that is. But, you know, I, I mean, in some ways, I think that's a lot of what we a lot of us experience. We, Jesus came and died and rose again to bring life out of death, literally, starting with him, walking out of a grave. And, and he says, this is for you too. And yet, if we're honest, some of us have broken relationships. We have people that we, we struggle to connect with or maybe don't and wish we did or, or, or we, we have cancer or we have money problems or we have things that are not, things that are hardly, we can't really consider new life, restoration. We, we've tasted it and we experienced a little bit. We believe it's coming but, but in the moment, we may not be fully experiencing what Jesus really offers to us. That's sort of similar to how these people are doing. They're, they're, things are going well, certainly better than they were before for them, but they've got a ways to go. They're still subject to Cyrus, by the way, the history. You know, Babylon took them out of Jerusalem, and then the Persians beat the Babylonians. I mean, it's just fascinating to see these empires rising and falling in this period of time. The Persians beat down the Babylonians. Cyrus becomes the, the king and says, okay, you can go back and build a temple. But I'm still king, right? They're not free people at this point. Cyrus is still their, their king. He's their ruler. They live in the Persian Empire at this particular point in history. That wouldn't last for long. They were, they, were, they were happy with where they were, but in many ways they were unfulfilled. And as I bet some of us can understand, unfulfilled people tend to do the easy thing. When we're kind of, yeah, we, we probably should do this, we... We know what is best, but I'm going to take the shortcut and do the easy thing. And that's, that's the situation that Ezra finds when he comes to Jerusalem after they've been 
doing this work and they're building the temple. And they've been doing all this stuff. And this is where it's going to get just a little sticky that I need to contextualize some stuff for you. Because the specific thing that Ezra finds... And the way it's put, I would argue that if you read the book of Ezra straight through without some contextualization and a little bit of understanding, it may be one of the most offensive books in the Bible to our present generation. Um, If we don't understand it right, because the issue, the issue, the single issue that that is held up as as a problem is intermarriage between races. That's the problem that Ezra encounters. The, the people are marrying daughters from the, the, you know, the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, and if you, you remember some of those people that were in the land. And, and so that is the problem that Ezra holds up. Now, here's the thing that we have to understand that you've got to contextualize this. This is not, it was not for Ezra. We read it and we might think it's a racial thing. Because we've got, we got baggage, right? We all do. And we read the Bible with certain lenses. And we, those are the lenses that we're likely to put on because we, we, we're wearing them. And when we read that, we're like, oh, Ezra was a racist. He didn't like mixed marriage. And here's the thing. The, the, the people of Israel had always and would always have simple provision. And we see it in the book of Ruth. Ruth was one of those people from the outside. She was a Moabite. And... She said, you'll remember, we talked about this not that long ago. She said, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That's it. Now she's one of us, right? It's not about race. It's about religion. It's about faithfulness. It's about sharing that in common, okay? When Ezra comes and he sees mixed marriages, his problem is not racism. He's not like, oh, you can't be with the ites. He's like, no, you got to be with people who are with you and are faithful to God. All you got to do is say, your people are my people, my God is your God. That's the issue at play, okay? Um, And the people at the time are doing the easy thing, and they're just hooking up with whoever's available without a whole lot of thought to the core issue, because this is the core issue, faithfulness to God. These people are coming back from Babylon. We were gone because we lacked faithfulness to God. We, we, we now are just a, a significantly smaller number of people coming back, trying to rebuild, and now you're not even trying to keep us all sort of faithful to the covenant that God has called us to. You're just bringing in people that are not faithful to the covenant, raising kids that are going to be worshiping all these other ite gods or whatever. We've got to be a covenant people. That's the issue, is faithfulness among all the people to God. So it's not, understand that, okay? It's not racist. It's faithfulness that he has an issue with. So... um, let me read this, because his, that's what he sees. He shows up in town. There's a little narrative before this. He shows up in town, and that's what he sees. He is told that this is what's happening. This is what it says. I'm going to start reading verse 3 of chapter 9. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. I love grieving in the Old Testament. 
I mean, I know we're Germans and Norwegians, but we could do with a little bit of pulling and ripping and tearing. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose up from my fasting and my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame, as it is today. All of what we're seeing around us as we're standing here in the beginnings of the rebuilding of these things, it's all because of us. That's what he says. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia, which you can see that too in the story. The Persian kings all seem to be, in one of my places in my other Bible, my regular Bible, not my little Ezra note. Oh, this one. I found that I had written in the margin, the, 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 the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord next to a story about Ezra trying to get back to Jerusalem and how Cyrus is just like giving and dumping all kinds of favor on him because God, that's what he says, you have, you have extended your steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea, Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh God, verse 10, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters and sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for your great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us, less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be, ang- would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant, not any to escape? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. No one can stand before you because of this. There's a few things that I think we can take, that we can see that Ezra does that I think are, are, are important. The first, and this is what stood out to me, the first thing he does is he laments. 
The very first thing he does, he tears his clothes, he pulls out his beard, he's ripping his hair, all that. Seems dramatic to us, I know, but that is what he did. You know, in these days, they used to actually hire mourners for funerals, like people who walk behind them and weep and wail. I mean, this, the, an, an external, dramatic display of grief was important to them. <laughs> Something I think some of us could do to gain back. If you were raised or been in an evangelical church for, you know, more than six months or so, you probably have learned that lament, external lament, is not something that we are trained to do. I think there's a American culture thing, I think a to an extent, a church culture thing where we're supposed to smile and say all is well, and you know everything's clean and everything's pretty. And yet, two-thirds, that's the majority, for those of you like me that don't do math well, I had to do use a calculator, two-thirds, more than half of the psalms are psalms of lament, grieving, teaching us how to how to, how to grieve, modeling for us how to grieve. And I, I thought about that, and I'm like, what? We, we, it's a part of who we are. It's in our very nature to, to lament, to cry out and call out for help. That's what lament means. Um, we come into the world doing that. Anybody in here that's ever been around a baby for more than five minutes knows what it's like to hear the sound of something, someone who, you know, is hungry or, you know, mad or their sock is twisted, right? And, and the cries and the neediness. And that comes from a place of trusting and believing that that need, whatever it might be, and sometimes it's hard to figure out, and that's why we get broken along the way, because... We parents always mess it up. We never get it right every time. But that, that, that crying out is in us because we trust and we believe that if we cry out, that'll be answered. Once upon a time, I was in a Russian orphanage. This is true, and it was shocking. A friend of mine, I haven't lost touch with him for 20 years, but he and his wife adopted a baby while we were in Russia and went to an orphanage. And uh, I still remember this room had about 25 or 30 cribs, three rows, two aisles, you know, kind of down the, the hallways, you know. And it's kind of tight. You walk through there, and there's a baby in every crib, and not a sound is being made. Because those babies have learned, and this is horrible, it's sad, it's heartbreaking, that, that, that it doesn't matter. And, and I, as I thought about that, I, I thought maybe within our sort of evangelical world, there, American evangelicals get accused of being, this is a, a phrase I've, I've read sometimes, practical atheists. We go to church on Sunday, otherwise we live as if there really is no God. We go on about our lives, we do what we want. Um, and maybe somehow in that being discipled, which is I think a good 
word for it, into believing that, we have come to believe that even as we lay there needy, there's no reason to call out. Because we've come to believe that whatever we have, we get ourselves. Whatever we need, we accomplish for ourselves. And so, when we need something, what's the point in crying out? I think we might need to lament more because lament, crying out, actually is a pathway to actually connecting to the heart of God. It's a way for us to reach out to his heart and say, where are you? I mean, look at the Psalms over and over. Why do you stand far off? Why have you forsaken me? Where have you gone? Hear my cry, right? All these kinds of, this is what we hear in that language of lament. It's a way for us to connect to God. It's also, I think, a way for us to share in the suffering of others. Matter of fact, that, um, that, that phrase, that, that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote from the Psalms. And theologians have for, well, let's see, 2,000 years or so, debated what Jesus really meant by, by quoting that psalm. You know, the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one in three. So how, and this is the question theologians debate, how was it that the Father forsook the Son in that moment on the cross and, and what that looks like. And I, I, I'm not going to tell you a, a solid answer because the theologians haven't figured it out yet either. But one thing I know he was doing was sharing in the suffering of David when David wrote it. And he was also sharing in the suffering of people who he knew, the, the man Jesus personally knew, who would be fed the lions and burned at stakes and, and, and crucified. And in one case, particularly maybe crucified upside down, legend has it, stoned to death, and who would also in those moments cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's also praying that psalm with all the saints through the ages like you and me who would also feel the weight of that. He shared it with us so that we might know what it is like to feel, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he prayed it with us. Some of us need to lament so that we can share in the sufferings of Christ and those around us, those in our community, because we are a community. And that's the other thing that he does, which I find fascinating, is, and we've seen this, we've seen this in the, the other prayers that we've looked at here, he confesses. In fact, confession makes up the bulk of this prayer. We have done all these things, right? We are guilty, our iniquities, our, our sins. He, he says this over and over. And in fact, he starts by saying, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. Now, here's the thing that I think about with Ezra here in this particular situation. As far as we know, he wasn't married. If he was, he's clearly not. Ezra is clearly not participating in the particular unfaithfulness that is causing him to blush at this moment. Here's my question for us. 
As we think about Ezra in this moment, let's just imagine for a minute, you come in here on a Sunday and you're the only person that shows up. Or, 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 or let's, let's imagine that you know, we somehow have a, you know, I don't know, somebody releases don- donors to the church and you find out you're the only one that's, that's on the list. Would you feel like, man, what's wrong with these people? Am I the only one? I mean, I think I would. That that would kind of be my go-to. Am I the only one around here that's getting this right? I mean, from our perspective and the way we tend to think, the way I tend to think, Ezra had every right to be like, you guys, the heck's wrong with you? But he doesn't do that. After grieving it, he says, we, we. You know, some languages don't even have a word for I and mine. They have we and ours, but they don't have I. They don't even have a word. I'm glad I don't speak that language, whatever. But, but I think there's something that some of us can learn from that because Ezra here, Ezra would have made a terrible American evangelical. I mean, just terrible. He would not have fit well. Because he, for all intents and purposes, I mean, from what we see, personally, he's getting it right. And yet, instead of saying, look, look at me, let's do it like, he doesn't even say that. He falls to his knees and he prays and he says, I am ashamed to lift my face to you. We are in such a mess. We have done this. I don't know. He, he never even prays to God. God, I'm sure glad I'm not like these people. He doesn't make it about them. And even, we, some of us might be tempted to note, and I, I did note, I see it, that he talks about the abominations and the uncleanness of these other people, right? Those are, those are Bible words to, to, to reveal that what Ezra is calling the people to, we use abomination. It sounds really bad when we say it. That's not the way it sounded to them because it means simply those people are not faithful to God. Those people are worshiping other gods. And we must not. We, God's chosen people, the people that God has laid his hand on and said, you are mine, we must be faithful. That's what that means. And Ezra could say, yeah, we're trying, but look at how terrible these guys are. That's not what he says. He says, we're supposed to be faithful, not like them. They're not even called to be faithful. We are. And look at us. And he points it all back to us. The church maybe has a tendency sometimes to look out and say, look at the abominations. Look at the uncleanness. Isn't that just awful what's going on out there? Listen, listen, because this is huge. That's not what Ezra models. Ezra models, sure, that's what those people out there do. But what about you? What about us? We, we, 
I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. We fail at this, and we are we. Now, a comparable, and this is going to sound like I'm trying, I'm not. We are at last count 19,000 behind for the year, I think, in our budget. Okay. Um, and and I, I, please, let me just preface it. I'm not asking anybody to write any kind of check or give anything today. I'm just asking you to hear this application for what it is to this, okay? Now, I've, I've done the math, and the median household income in Bismarck is 60000 Actually, it's seventy now. I just looked that up. It's seventy. It's been sixty for a while. Seventy. But but by that, if the number of giving households that we have in our church, if we are median, we ought to have a budget. If we give ten percent, we would have a budget twice as big as our current one. Twice as big. That's that's facts. That's numbers and statistics. Now I'm not I'm not telling you what you need to do. Other than this. If that's true, then I, maybe, I don't know you, I don't know, I don't know what anybody gives, maybe you give half of our existing budget. If we're like Ezra, we should still say, oh my God, I am ashamed. Because we, we are not being faithful. We are held captive by, by the, the love of comfort, by the love of safety, by the love of stuff. We, we, we do this. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you personally do. doesn't matter. That's not what Ezra does. See, some of us are, I feel it too, some of us are, are tempted to, you know, well, yeah, but I'm doing my, mm. Ezra did not say, yeah, well, I'm doing my part. And I'm not asking you to do more. That's not the point. The point is, are we willing to confess, as if it's ours, the sins of our community? Are we willing to confess the sins of the Western American church in slavery, and racism, and greed? Oh my goodness, greed. You know, for the last 30 years, the Western American church spent a lot of time pointing at, at gay people. Let me tell you something, whole lot more greedy people in the church. Whole lot more. <laughs> but we were quiet about that one. <laughs> Are we willing to do that? Because that's, that's the point. Ezra does not, he does not go off on out here. He goes off on in here and says, we... Are we willing to make that confession? And even as he does, and this is the beautiful thing, and this is what I think we've got to hear because this is huge. And, and please, I don't want anybody to be, please hear me here. I would rather us go bankrupt than a single person be motivated by guilt or shame to put another penny in that box at the back of the room. Let me say that real clearly. I'd just soon turn the lights off and go home. I don't want that being your driver, Okay. Let me say that. I want this to be. It's the third thing that Ezra notes. And he says it multiple times. He, he is recognizing that even now, even then, in the midst of their, their, their unfaithfulness, they are dependent on God's grace and his mercy. In verse 8, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. 
Verse 9. Yes, we are slaves, yet God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but extended His steadfast love. That's that pursuing, chasing, caring love that He is extending. Verse 13. You have not punished us as much as... He says, you have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Mercy. Mercy and grace. Even even in the midst of this, even even in the unfaithfulness, even the people are quite staying between the the guardrails, even in the midst of that, God's mercy is, is holding them fast. God's grace is caring for them and uplifting them. Are we people who are able to recognize that we are presently, even now, dependent completely on God's grace and mercy. I think lament will help. I think confession of our own and our community's struggles um, will help to get us there. But I think even now as we, you know, yeah, okay, let's say it. Yeah, I mean, come on, the Western church, we, we, we can't really deny that we are influenced by the, the, the consumerism, the, the culture that says, oh, you got to have this, you got to be comfortable, and you got to be safe, and you got to, oh, you, you can't, you, you know, you got to be wise with your money, which usually means have as much as you can. You know, that's, that's kind of, we, we are influenced by that. And even in the midst of it, God's so good to us. So good to us. You have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. We stand in his grace right now in his mercy. Christ died for selfish, greedy, messed up people. We stand in his grace. And that's the process. What, What Ezra does here is what I think prayer ought to look like. He sees a problem. He grieves that problem. He acknowledges it and he says, it shouldn't be this way. And then he confesses the flaws of the people, and he includes himself in that, as a part of the reason things are messed up. We are so quick to point out you're the reason things are messed up. No, you're, it's you. It's those people over there, right? We're, we're so quick to do that. Ezra does not do that. He says, oh, things are messed up. Tear my shirt, and I'm a part of the problem. I think G.K. Chesterton, I think it was G.K. Chesterton, who was asked by a newspaper writer, uh, what is the biggest problem with the world today? And he said, I am. I think that will help get us there. And then, and then, standing there, realizing that the biggest problem in the world today is me, and I stand by grace. And God loves me, and He cares for me. And yeah, you know, I live, like Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's what Ezra kind of says, too. He lumps himself right in there with the messy people. And then he says, and we stand in the grace of God. And I believe with everything in me that that pattern of of prayer 
and of life will transform us to give as an come back to that example, and I don't mean to make it all about that, but I think we might just have twice as big a budget if we were changed by grace. If we really become people who believe we are the problem and Jesus is the solution, I think it'll change our hearts. I think it'll change the things that we love the most. And I think, I, I, I think it'll change the world. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are the answer. We are often greedy, we're selfish, we're, we're judgmental. We tend to judge others as a way of protecting ourselves from the truth about what we know is true about us. Would you, would you heal us? Help us to learn what it means to lament, to grieve, to weep over our own failures and the failures of those around us. And help us to stand and to trust and believe that that you uphold us. Nothing else does, nothing else will, nothing else can. You are the king, the rock, the almighty, the holy one. You are the, the God who died to bring us to yourself. Would you bring us to yourself by your grace, by your mercy today? It's in your name. Amen.